Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luer, and I'm thrilled to have a superstar on the phone with me here today from Washington, D.C., Mr. David Falk. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks. Delighted to be with you. David, uh, I will just do a really short introduction because uh, everyone knows you um, as the super agent, uh, the man who created or, or helped create Michael Jordan and Patrick Ewing and many other superstars uh, who are considered in many of the articles I've seen uh, as one of the most powerful people in the NBA, maybe next to the commissioners. So I'm thrilled and honored to have you on the line here, sir, and I will you know, get started here right away. And as we always do on, our, on the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast, we started with a little warm-up session. And I know you have, some, you have a very unique and interesting background there, where you came from and how your parents and, and others influenced you. So why don't we start there before we go into the world of basketball? Certainly. So I grew up in, uh, in the suburbs of New York in a small town called Seaford, Long Island, which is a, a sort of a blue-collar town. My parents were very diverse. My dad uh, never finished high school. He was a butcher, uh, owned a few uh, retail butcher shops, which uh, I worked at from the time I was about nine years old on. And my mother was an extremely highly educated woman uh, with two master's degrees who spoke about eight languages and was an interpreter during, during World War II. And then after the kids got old enough, she went back to school and became a teacher. So they were they were very different. My mom is sort of my life mentor. I mean, I, I my mom was the most influential person in my life. She stressed education to a very strong degree. And, uh, you know, almost every day, uh, I think of my mom, a very dear friend of mine, um, gave me a present. He, gave, he made it, had a headstone like you'd have at a gravesite made with my mom's mantra, which says, always shoot for the stars and never settle for second best. So, so I grew up in this small town, and a very sort of unusual thing happened in the fifth grade of my elementary school. Uh, at the end of, we had a sort of a rite, uh, if you will. Uh, at, the end of, at the end of the year, we had these little books that had colored pages on it, and everybody would write something in the book, sort of like you'd write in a yearbook. And this one gentleman, who I wasn't really that friendly with, named Gregory Mallow, wrote in my book that I should be a lawyer because I was a good arguer. <laughs> and, and from the time, probably from fifth grade on, I always expected that I'd become a lawyer. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I went through high school. I went to college uh, at Syracuse University, uh, where I have a very strong connection today. And then I went to law school here in Washington, D.C. at George Washington. And uh, at Syracuse, my very first day of school, uh, I had the two star basketball players on the team on my floor. And we became great pals from day one to this day. I talked to them all the time. We played golf together. And I had this very sort of romantic notion that we all graduated four years down the road, that if they went pro, that I would be their agent. And did that happen? Well, yeah, unlike a lot of very uh, young agents today, by the time I became a senior, actually one of them got drafted uh, and played professional in Europe for a while. Uh, I realized I had no clue how to be an agent. Uh, and so I, I had to go to law school. Right. Uh, and in law school, uh, I started networking. I started meeting people that 
were in various aspects of the sports business. Uh, the very first person I met uh, was a guy named Phil McLaughlin, who was a financial manager in Boston who managed a lot of the Celtics, Boston Celtics, including Red Auerbach, who was the legendary uh, you know, president of the Celtics. Right. And he in turn introduced me to a gentleman in New York named Larry Fleischer, who founded the NBA Players Union. Uh, Players Association and was probably the most powerful agent at the time. And to put your audience in perspective, Marcus, mm. this is like 1972, 73. The agent business had literally just started. Right. Uh, invented by a gentleman in Cleveland, a Mark McCormick. Yes. Most of the people that practiced it were were, were individual entrepreneurs. They didn't have big companies uh, and these large agencies like we have today, like IMG or Octagon or ProServe. Yep. They were all individuals. So when I went to meet them, they were very helpful, but they weren't remotely interested in hiring. Right. And they all told me that if I was in school in Washington, that I should meet this gentleman named Donald Dell. Right. I didn't know who Donald Dell was. It turned out he was, he was a lawyer who had been the U.S. Davis Cup captain. That's right. And he had a very small law firm. This is before ProServe called Dell, Craig, Hill, Fenderson, Benton. Right. And I tried to get an interview with Donald. And for <laughs> your listeners who are looking for jobs, uh, I am an extremely persistent person. You know, when I get thought in my mind, something I want to do, I'm extremely goal-oriented. So I called Donald for months, and I couldn't get him on the phone. <laughs> Sounds like Donald. Exactly. Every excuse that you could give a person about taking a phone call. He was in a meeting. He was at lunch. He was in the men's room. He was out of town. He was being with a client. And, you know, I've, I've met four or five U.S. presidents. I've met the head of most companies. This was a guy who was like running a five-person law firm. He wasn't like royalty. And I, I reached the point of saturation. Uh, and one day uh, I just said, he's going to talk to me today. And I called him 17 times in four hours. Wow. I just kept calling and calling. And when his assistant ran out of excuses, he finally granted me an interview. Uh, and I was working at the time in a very prestigious law firm called Sidley and Austin, the Washington mm -hmm. branch. And I, I went on my lunch hour. And he kept me waiting three and a half hours for the interview, which <laughs> Donald's famous for. When yes. uh, I finally met him, um, we talked for about half an hour. He, he told me he wasn't he wasn't hiring anyone, and he certainly wasn't hiring anyone with my background. Uh, and so I offered to go to work for free. Yeah. Probably one of the best offers Donald ever received. And so he hired me for free. And at the end of my second year in law school, uh, I got married. I was taking summer school. I had a full-time job. And when I finished my job at 6 p.m. every night, I'd walk across the street to ProServe, to the law firm, and work from like 6 to 11 for free. Wow. That's dedication. Um, and, that's, and so at the end of that period, I went back to school for my last year. He hired me to be a clerk, and the school allowed us to work part-time for 20 hours a week, and I probably worked 80 hours a week for wow. the Princeton sum of $5 an hour. Wow. Um, I think I made more as a busboy when I was a teenager. <laughs> gave me an opportunity to break into the industry. And I would tell your listeners that, you know, every industry has barriers to entry. And if you really want to get into an industry, if you're motivated to, you know, be in analytics or be in marketing or sales or 
you know, what engineering, whatever it happens to be, you really have to find a way in. You know, finding a way in is often, it's like getting into school. It's very difficult to get into certain colleges, but once you get in, it's really not hard to stay in. And this, you know, I think that you have to be very persistent and, fo- and laser focused on finding an entry point to, to begin your career. I totally agree, and I could share one of my stories on it, but uh, this is not about me here. I love that, yeah. Um, now, when you then got into ProSurf, um, and I know you were with them for, if I recall correctly, 17 years, so that's obviously a very long time. Um, you know, tell me a bit about the, the early days and, and, and of course, uh, you know, how this then led into, you know, the Michael Jordan part of the story. Sure, so, so between the time I started for free and the time that I finished school, which is about 18 months, um, they had me do an interesting project that you'd probably do today in about an hour. It took me like a year to do it. <laughs> and I went through every single contract, which was on paper. There were no computers, no yeah. internet at the time. And I had to summarize every single contract in the firm, whether it was you know, a basketball playing contract or it was a tennis player's contract with Wilson or Adidas or you know, a, a club deal to represent a resort. And so at the end of this period of time, I had a really good feel for the marketplace that I would never have had without, without this project. So in the early days, I worked under the aegis of a young Michael Cardozo. He was Donald's like, chief of staff. And Michael took me under his wing and sort of showed me the lay of the land of the company, taught me how to write contracts. I became an expert at writing contracts. I've probably written thousands of contracts of all types. Um, And what happened was, ironically, after like one year of working under Michael's wing, he was asked to run the state of Connecticut for President Jimmy Carter's presidential campaign in 1976. And Jimmy Carter won every state on the East Coast except the state that Michael ran. (laughs) which was Connecticut, and to reward his great job, um, Jimmy Carter hired Michael to be one of the four counsels to the president, which is very prestigious. So he left, and when he left, the law firm was in a panic because Michael had about 20 clients. He had tennis clients, basketball clients, and they came to me. I was probably 25 years old, said, okay, you got to take over these these 20 clients. And, and so it was sort of trial by fire. I had to mm. take everything I'd learned in 18 months or so. And it really jump-started my career by about five years because I was thrown right into the mix. I had to learn how to manage the clients, help them with their schedules, negotiate shoe deals for them. And, um, and at the same time, because Michael was Donald's chief of staff, I became Donald's chief of staff. I went to every meeting with him. Uh, I, I answered his mail, I answered phone calls for him, and I really, I'd say it was a five-year, I did that for about five years, Marcus, and mm. it's an apprenticeship for me, because I mostly sat and listened. I didn't say a lot in the meetings, it was Donald's show, um, and I watched him operate, and I learned a great deal. I mean, I always will be grateful for Donald for giving me my start. Um, yes. And But when I watched him, I saw that he had certain personality traits that that didn't match up with mine, and I didn't want to emulate his style because it didn't feel work for me. And again, I would say to the listeners out there, you know, 
people write books about negotiations, which amused me because I think negotiations used to have a style that fits your personality. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never gotten up and walked out of a meeting. You know, I don't try to give people artificial deadlines. I, I think there are a lot of histrionics in the negotiating process. I try to develop a style that worked for me. Mm-hmm. And having a background in economics, I always wanted to have facts that I would present to my opponent that I thought would, like a lawyer would, at presenting a case in court that would make it simple to know that this was the correct position. Right. I didn't want to try to have to bully them or fool them. And, you know, Donald was a person who's a very busy guy. He rarely prepared for his meetings. He would just walk in and wing it. A lot of times he didn't even know important facts. And I was the opposite. I wanted to walk in and be so well prepared that there was nothing that would surprise me because I learned you know, that a good lawyer never asks a question that he doesn't know the answer to. Right. So I became, I became almost obsessed with preparation. I want, even though I had a, a nearly photographic memory, I had memorized all the contracts in the NBA. Wow. Um, I took notes, that I walked in, I wanted to feel confident that I had covered every potential angle um, that I'd face in, in a meeting. Mm, I love that, and I I remember reading or, or hearing about uh, how you always you're you you over preparing, right? I think was sort of your your mantra, and which also links a bit to how Michael was, right? Um, before we get into that, uh, maybe you uh, you know talk a bit about that, how similar you maybe were you guys were in in that sort of sense. I'll tell you a great story. So Michael was interested in baseball when he retired in 1993. He played for the Chicago White Sox minor league team called the Birmingham Bears. I remember that, and yes. Right around the same time, the baseball all-star game was in Baltimore, which is 30 minutes. I live in, I live outside of Washington, D.C. in suburban Maryland, Baltimore. Mm. So Michael goes to the all-star game, and he gets, gets invited to the Celebrity Home Run Contest that was sponsored by uh, Upper Deck, which is one of his companies, yep. which won. And then he stayed for the Major League home run contest so I go to find him in the stadium to congratulate him for winning the contest and he's sitting in the dugout talking to Barry Bonds who's the all time home run leader in Major League Baseball and they're shooting the breeze and Bonds goes up to take his practice swings for the home run contest and he, he doesn't hit any home runs and he comes back and Michael says to him like what was that and Barry says like what are you talking about he goes you didn't hit one home run And Bond says, well, Michael, that was practice. And Michael says, well, don't you practice hard? Bonds laughs, and, of course not, do you? And Michael gets so, really serious. And he said, of course. He goes, you know, how can you play hard if you don't practice hard? You have to train yourself, you know, for what to expect on the court. Right. So dugout starts filling up, and Bonds, Bonds gets uh, called for his re- regular cut in the home run contest, and he hits five home runs. Right. I think the one that had 17. And as he's walking back to the dugout, there's about 20 major league players in the dugout. He gets about 10 feet away, and Michael says to him, it's about damn time that you started working. Oh, <laughs> and that's that's just the way he is. Michael, Michael yeah. is not only the most talented player probably of all time, but his work ethic is second to none. He never wanted to feel that another player would outwork him. And I think early on, you know, I met when I was 33, um, and I was just at the beginning of my career. I think we found a bond because he realized that 
I was as competitive in what I did as he was in what he did. And he's the most competitive person I've ever met. And it just, it formed a very natural bond uh, because I think he felt comfortable that I would always be prepared. I wouldn't be surprised. He didn't have to call me up and tell me things were important. I understood everything that I did for him was important hmm. to me. Interesting. And uh, I want to jump back for a minute to what you mentioned earlier in terms of negotiation style. Again, uh, what I read and heard uh, that you had quite a bit of a – you had a, a tough style, let's put it this way maybe, um, and you weren't necessarily always the most liked guy. Um, how would you ex you know describe that and, and maybe you have a story around this? Sure. I, I think I had sort of two phases to my career. When I started being extremely young, you're dealing with very established executives. Um, I really believed that I had to win every battle to establish myself. Mm. And at age 40, uh, I sort of had an epiphany and I realized that, especially in a business like sports, where you deal with the same people over and over again, you know, you have clients on the same team or you have players who want to sign with the same shoe companies or the same soft drink companies, Coca-Cola or Pepsi or McDonald's or Burger King, mm. you have to develop relationships. Right. Relationships are the lubricant that makes deals happen. And you get to a certain point in a negotiation where there's a gap. And if people like you and they respect you and you've had a good history of dealing and you ask them to take a leap of faith to bridge the last gap, they will. If they don't like you, they won't. And so at age 40, I started a process of trying to repair a lot of the bridges that I had burned in my 20s. Right. And I realized a very, very important lesson for your listeners. Negotiations is not a zero-sum game. It's not that one side wins and one side loses. To mm. make the deal work, both sides have to win. And you have to learn what you can give up to your opponent that you can live with that he needs to, he or she needs to have to make the deal. If you think you're going to win every sentence in the deal, uh, like someone I know who lives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, you know, you're not going to make a lot of deals because, you know, because there'll be another day when you don't have as much leverage and the person will always remember if you, if you exceeded what I call the zone of fairness. Every deal has a zone of fairness, a range. Yes. And your job for your client is to get to the top of the range. And generally, your opponent's job is to make sure that you're at the bottom of the range. But regardless, you have to be in the range. And when you get outside what's fair, and everyone knows what's fair, then, then you develop problems. I, I totally agree. I, I think it's it's all about leaving something on the table for both sides to feel good about it, right? Uh, I think it's in a nutshell what you just said. Absolutely. And I, and I think that when you don't do that, you know, people remember. And in our business... You know, my wife, Rhonda, uh, taught me a great lesson when I was young. She said, when these things happen, don't get mad, just get even. And you said, <laughs> remember these things. Um, yes, you know, you do. Like, you mentioned being liked. I think that's another very important thing to share with, with your listeners. You know, I have, I'd say, after my mother, the person that probably has been the most influential mentor in my life is the basketball coach here in Washington, D.C. at Georgetown University, John Thompson, who's a Hall of Fame legend. Right. I met John when I was literally 30 years old, and we've had a lifelong friendship. 
Um, I've been his lawyer and his agent, and he's been sort of my probably the most influential male person in my life. Mm. I was in my mid-30s. He called me in one day and said, son, I think you have a problem. I got very nervous. Said, <laughs> what is it? He goes, let me ask you a question. Do you want people to like you? And I said, of course, John. That's a very natural human emotion. Yeah. He said, if you want people to like you, quit the business you're in. You're in a business when you walk in the door and you're asking very wealthy owners to pay these outrageous amounts of money for your clients. They're going to hate your guts. They're going to resent you for being so aggressive. And if that bothers you, quit the business. What you should be concerned about is that they respect you. The only people who are going to like you are your clients. Now, I think that was a little bit extreme intentionally to try to get me to focus on not worrying about how the thing looks, but really worry more how, you know, how it is, you know, what's the substance of what you're doing. And I, I would say it's possible to ever not have hankerings that you want people to like you because we're, we're not, we're not robots, but it taught me the importance of, of being res- respected. And, mm. and I, you know, for the next 30 years of my career, those words ring in my ear all the time. And I think it's a great lesson for your listeners because it's not that you want to be disrespectful or you want to be arrogant, but you have to have a position that makes sense and stick to it mm. and not worry if, you know, if it, if it surprises someone or sometimes even shocks them. Um, because when you make landmark deals, when you're when you're a market leader, and I was a market leader for many years, Absolutely. you know, you have to do things that that are forward thinking. If I can give you a very interesting dichotomy, yeah. Mark, please. I have two polar opposite parts of my background. I went to law school for three years, and in law school they teach you to look at things that happened in the past, which are called precedents, as mm-hmm. guidelines for what happens in, in the present. Yep. You know, you look at a case that was decided five or six different times, and that's the precedent for how you think the case should be decided today. Hmm. When I became an entrepreneur in my 50s, entrepreneurs are trained exactly the opposite, to ignore the past and forget what people did 10 years ago. Your job is to figure out what people are gonna be doing five to 10 years from now, and to find the the niches in the marketplace that aren't being serviced and to find a company or a service that you're going to develop, whether it's Uber or, you know, Facebook, to find something in the marketplace that doesn't exist. And so you have to be forward thinking and you can't worry if what you propose people think is unconventional or it hasn't. When people say to me, I can't do that because that's not the way we do it. That's the greatest motivation for me to accomplish what they're telling me they can't do. That's a terrible reason to tell people you won't accept a point because you haven't done it before. Yeah, Think of all the society today, you know, that, that haven't been done before. Absolutely. Almost every, the world is changing so quickly, like Moore's Law, in every few years the, the pace changes and you have to adapt to the new to the new practices. 
Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a fantastic segue actually into talking about some of these breakthrough deals and the things you've done uh, in your career. And, and let's start with the biggest maybe of them all. Uh, with Michael Jordan, um, and I, I'm actually, I, I've heard uh, you know you've talked about it many times how you got uh, involved with him, but uh, I want to skip that part. I want to skip maybe a little forward to um, when you're then representing him uh, and how the Nike deal came about. Um, there's so many different stories out there. Uh, I'd love to hear your version of it. Well, I'll tell you the real version. There are a lot of <laughs> exactly that are uh, actualized, but you know what had happened. You know when you were representing these very high-profile players, and I'm in my 20s and my 30s, there's a tremendous amount of, I say, a combination of a challenge for you to step up to the plate because you're dealing with these megastars and to give them quality of work that's commensurate with their quality of work. Uh, and there's a certain amount of pressure, you know, because Absolutely. you're not established. And so the first one of these for me came two years before Michael for a player named James Worthy who was Michael's teammate uh, at the University of North Carolina. James was the most valuable player when Carolina won the NCAA tournament in 1982 against Georgetown that Michael hit the winning shot in. He was the number one pick in the draft. Mm -hmm. uh, and for those of your listeners who are NBA fans, James Worthy is the answer to the trivia question, who's the only player in NBA history who is the number one pick in the draft selected by a team that had just won the championship. which was So when James came out, the shoe market was just dying. The highest paid player in the history of the NBA was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was his teammate on the Lakers. Right. And the second highest paid player was Magic Johnson, who was also his teammate on the Lakers. Jim, can you share some numbers just to give a perspective uh, where the, these deals were at that time? So Kareem was making 100 a year. And Magic was making $75,000 a year, which is considered enormous money back then. Yeah. And so when James came out, um, I had developed a very close relationship with Nike. When I was young, um, one of the senior partners was close with Adidas, one was close with Converse, and I was trying to find my own edge. So I found this tiny little company in Beaverton, Oregon, in mm -hmm. the Pacific Northwest, and became very close friends with the head of marketing. It was a gentleman named Rob Strasser. Right. And by the time Worthy came out in 82, we had developed such a close relationship that when the players would come out, he would basically, whatever I asked him for, he'd pay me. If he said, what's this player worth? And I didn't want to abuse the respect. I knew that he really trusted me and that I was going to be aggressive for my clients, but within the zone of fairness. So when Worthy came out, um, Instead of making an offer, we told all the shoe couples that we would accept offers starting at $100,000 a year. Hmm. And they all basically told me that I was crazy. How could you expect to pay a rookie the most, the same amount of money as the highest paid player in the entire league, Kareem Jabbar? Uh, right. So if you think he's worth it, I said, this is a historical anomaly. This is the first and only player ever drafted number one by a team that had just won the title. And he's going to play a lot of minutes right away and be a star. He became one of the 50 greatest players of all time. And and we, we ended up signing with a company called New Balance, which is an American company that mm -hmm. manufactured their shoes in America. And they paid him $150,000 a year for eight years. So he made 50% more than the highest paid player in the history of the league had made, twice as much 
as Magic Johnson, who's one of the greatest players of all time. And so that set the stage for So that Michael. was your warm-up. Yes. That was the warm-up, exactly. So when Michael came out, um, I told him, I made a decision. Michael, you have to understand, Michael had just started the Olympics in Los mm-hmm. Angeles in 1984. Right. And the Olympics was stage for Michael, a worldwide stage of billions of people watching the Olympics. Yep. And at that time in America, only college players were allowed to play in the Olympics. There were no NBA players in the Olympics. That's right. So I was on the team with Patrick Ewing and Chris Mullen, a lot of really good NBA to be NBA players. Hmm. He dominated the Olympics, uh, shockingly, because at college he was a very, very good player. He was the two-time National Player of the Year, but his coach was one of the great coaches of all time, Dean Smith. Nice. Sort of held him back. He wanted to be is in within the fabric of the team. At the Olympics, he did things that people had never seen before. <laughs> and, and so when I watched this, it gave me an idea that Michael should be treated like a tennis player. Even though he was playing a team sport like mm. basketball, he would be so dominant on the team he was selected by, the Chicago Bulls, which right. was a terrible team uh, at the time. Right. That I told all the companies I wanted it to be treated like a tennis player and have his own line of shoes and clothes. And most of was just nuts. Michael was not the number one pick in the draft or the number two pick in the draft. And nobody believed in 1984 that he would be remotely as good as he became. They thought he'd be an exciting player, but they didn't believe that he'd be the kind of dominant player that he became. Um, and so, so Nike, uh, Michael wanted to sign with, with Adidas. He loved Adidas. Right. Uh, and he had developed a close relationship with the local salesperson uh, in the southeast part of America named Gary Stoken. And whenever he could wear Adidas, he couldn't wear him playing because Dean Smith was a converse. And he told me, I want to be with Adidas. Now, at the time, one of the senior partners in ProServe uh, for years had represented um, the owner of Adidas, who was named Horst Dossler, who was the son of the founder, Adi Dossler. Mm-hmm. And Horst had died, and the company was in disarray. And they told us they really didn't have the ability to execute a deal for Michael, to be able to market him. So they were basically out of it. And I wanted to put Michael with Nike because they were like me. They were young and hungry, and they really needed him. And I thought they'd be the most aggressive in marketing. But I only had one problem, Marcus. Hmm. Michael didn't didn't want to go. go. He didn't want to go meet Nike. Right. People in, in the Nike family, one of them is a good friend of mine named George Raveling. Another is a gentleman named Sonny Vaccaro. Both these guys take credit for signing Michael with Nike. And I tell them both, uh, you guys were so influential, you couldn't even convince Michael to get on the airplane and go visit Nike. Right. <laughs> and so we went out to visit Nike. And Michael was there against his will. His parents forced him to get on the plane. And he didn't crack a smile in eight hours. We met for eight hours. They showed him music videos. They showed him product. And I knew he was really angry at me for forcing him to be there. So at the end of the at the end of the meeting, they took him to dinner. And I said, like, I sort of said very sheepishly to him, like, what do you think? And he whispered my ear, I, I don't want to go anywhere else. This is it. I was like stunned because. He never cracked a smile, and it was a very interesting lesson for me. He was 21 years old, 
and he was a great poker player. He never yeah, was just going to say that's the poker phase right there. Absolutely, he was he was amazing. So that's so anyway. So the sequel to the story. So then Strasser, who was the head of marketing, came back to Washington to actually make the deal. This was just like a campus visit, and he said to me, "Look, I know you want us to make a line of shoes and clothes. What do you want to call the line?" Now, at the time, if you were a tennis player or a golfer and you had your own racket, your own golf clubs, your own shoes, they called those either autograph products because it had your signature on the shoe or signature shoe. That's, right. what, that's what the products were called. Yep. So I said to Strasser, of the world. Absolutely. So I said to Strasser, what do I want to call the shoe? I want to call it Michael Jordan. That's his name. It's an autograph shoe. And he goes, no, we can't call it Michael Jordan because no one's going to believe that a 21-year-old basketball player is sitting in an apartment at night designing shoes. It has no credibility. Right. So we may be willing to give you a line, but you have to come up with a name, but the name can't be Michael Jordan. Now, to put, put the meeting took place on a Saturday in Washington in August. It's about 95 degrees outside, and on the weekends, the building had turned off the air conditioning every weekend to save money. And we're sitting there sweating, and he's telling me I can have a line, but I can't call him Jordan. I wanted to strangle him. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there, and he said, your challenge is come up with a name. And it literally, it literally took less than a minute. And I had this inspiration because Nike had just come out with this brand new running shoe that had what was considered to be a revolutionary technology called air soles. Oh, yeah. That was cushioning your feet when you hit the ground. And because Michael was a dunker and played in the air, I said, okay, big time. We're going to call the shoe Air Jordan. Air for the air soles and the technology and the way he plays. Jordan for the name. And that was it. It took, it took a minute. So Amazing. It was, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And um, Michael to this day said it was the best idea I ever had and the last good idea I ever had. <laughs> I, I'm jumping a little bit ahead, and I'll come back later. But uh, are you still working with them now, or um, has that sort of relationship finished? Well, what, what the relationship hasn't finished, but Michael became an owner, and the the, um, the player rules don't allow you to represent both players and owners. It's a conflict. So when he I became an owner, uh, I I was not able to represent him anymore. Which, which is really a mixed blessing. I mean, there's part of me I miss the action, and part of me I'm glad that you know I don't have to ask him to do anything. I don't have to ask him to go see Nike or make appearances. <laughs> We're still really good friends. We play golf together. You know, we talk on a regular basis. Um, you know, he's been a lifelong friend. Um, and there are times that I miss, you know, but you know, it's sort of like it's sort of like having children. You know, Michael's. 57 years old and he has to make his own decisions he's a very smart businessman um, I think he's learned a lot over the years uh, from a lot of different people and um, if he wants my counsel it's available to him 24-7 he knows that um, but you know I respect that at his age you know, he's a very intelligent man you know it's not the same as being 21 and saying you have to go see Nike um, because he's He's inexperienced. He's very experienced now. Absolutely. Uh, so our relationship is, is social. 
That's awesome. Now, I, I, let's go back to, um, you know, we all know what Michael became. Um, I, I just want to throw one, one story here. Uh, as a young boy um, in my whatever teens, uh, watching Michael Jordan uh, and, and others play, uh, or, or even sometimes watching sort of replays of, of things, I literally had tears in my eyes. I, I cannot, I don't know how, um, and I always thought it was a bit weird <laughs> at that time. Uh, now being involved in the sports industry for almost 25, over 25 years, I know why. I just have this huge passion for the industry and stuff, but obviously I didn't realize at that time. But Michael brought me to tears many times uh, in, in a good way, <laughs> just as a little side note. And I'm probably not well, the actually, only one. They have a great movie coming out t today. Uh, called The Last Dance, which is a 10-part documentary produced by um, uh, a very good friend of mine um, from Mandalay, and um, it's going to be it's going to be awesome. I did a four-hour interview for it. Michael Tolan is the producer, uh -huh. um, and all the things that you loved watching them. You know, we're, we're there's no NBA now because of the pandemic, yeah, and. Yeah. It comes out, I think it comes out this afternoon at, at one o'clock. Awesome. And it's about Michael's life or Michael's? Yeah, it's, it's, it's about the last year of his career. Oh, wow. Awesome. I, I, I am looking forward to, to catching that for sure. Now, what, what I'd love to get a bit into now is sort of the, the business side of it. Um, you know, Michael obviously became a global superstar uh, of the highest order, making, you know, huge deals around the world. Uh, and I'd love to show a little bit the contrast of you know how he's obviously at the beginning and you mentioned already you know the first deals were in the hundreds of thousands and at the end it became you know tens of millions and hundreds of millions um but i also would love to you know uh, so if you tell me a bit about you know how you saw that progressing and, and how the numbers just getting bigger and bigger and, and 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 how you saw that as being his agent there how you managed to how you were able to drive that well first of all it's very difficult for a young audience to believe this but when michael was a rookie in 1984 in America, team sport athletes, and particularly African-American team sport athletes, were basically non-existent in marketing. Mm. Um, Magic Johnson, who had won the MVP, the Rookie of the Year, the championship in his first year, had one deal outside of shoes and balls uh, for seven up for one year. Right. The thought was that, that African-American team sport athletes couldn't drive sales. So when Michael came out, we went to McDonald's, for example. We had a great relationship with McDonald's. We had a lot of our tennis clients promoting McDonald's. And McDonald's is based in Chicago where Michael's playing. Right. And they really didn't want to sign him. They, they couldn't <laughs> understand how he could help them sell product. Uh, wow. And so his first deal at McDonald's was were two local deals, one in Chicago, in the Chicago area, and one in North Carolina, where he was from, and went to school for $25,000 each. So right. he made $5,000 his first year at McDonald's. After the second year of the deal, the woman that ran the North Carolina co-op didn't want to resign him because she couldn't understand how to market, how to use Michael marketing. Um, and so in many ways, Michael taught the industry how a young player, uh, very exciting player, um, could no could be a vehicle for in, in marketing, mm. uh, and so we, and so when we started out, my vision for Michael, I thought he was like the all-American boy. You know, right. he came from a great family, two-parent family. He went to college, he graduated, 
He had a great smile. He was a very genuine guy. So his first three deals in, in marketing were Coca-Cola, McDonald's, and Chevrolet. You know, mm-hmm. which, as all-American as it gets. Yep. Um, he had the Chevy deal forever, as long as he played. Um, uh, he had the McDonald's deal for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And Coca-Cola, um, which had a lot of celebrity athletes. They had Whitney Houston. They had Elton John. They had athletes, singers. They really didn't do a very good job um, marketing him. So after his fifth year in the league, we switched his drink to Gatorade. And he was the only pl- person. And that was the breakthrough deal, Marcus, because I actually was on an airplane reading a story about the great golfer Jack Nicholas. Right. And Jack became successful in his 40s. He made a decision that he didn't want to have a lot of relationships and to and to try to regulate the number he had, he asked companies to make 10-year deals. And I thought that was a great idea. So when mm. Gatorade came up in 1991, um, Michael was 28. He had already been in the league for seven years. Um, and we asked him for a 10-year deal at seven figures per year. Uh, and they made it. Uh, right. And that set the template for every deal he did after that. We kept increasing the numbers. But Gatorade... He was the only individual in the world that they used in marketing. Mm. It, yeah, I remember this, the, the ads. And I'll tell you a great story. So the very first commercial, which no one has ever seen, it, 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 never, it was never shown. Okay. The fan in what was then called Yugoslavia, it was probably Croatia today. Right. Like you got, got tears in your eyes watching him. This fan wrote a letter to Michael to tell him how much he enjoyed watching him play. And he addressed the letter Mr. Michael Jordan, USA, and it got there. Right. <laughs> no, city, <laughs> state, um, and, and that, that was their first commercial. They decided not to show it. Um, the most famous commercial was the one that we call "Be Like Mike," yes. um, and they wanted to use Gatorade wanted to use the music from a Disney movie called uh, "The Jungle Book," and there was a song "Be Like Him," mm-hmm. and asked Disney for the rights to the music, they wanted to charge us $500,000. So Gatorade found a small street group in Chicago, and they paid him $10,000, and they come up with the song, I Want to Be Like Mike. And yeah. that expression is used all the time, you know. You know Absolutely. In, in all sorts of walks of life, it's become a cultural iconic line, Be Like Mike. You know, awesome stories. Um, and I, I'll want to pace us a little bit to, to move on here. But in all the deals you've done there, just uh, before we move on to some of the other parts, um, what's the biggest one? You know, if you, I don't know whether you can publicly say it, but, uh, you know, give a sense of what was the largest uh, you've ever signed for, whether it was Michael or any of the other players. Well, you know, it's an interesting question because the largest deal we did while he played was for telecom. We did a $100 million deal for telecom. Mm. But the biggest deal he has by far is, is Nike for Brand Jordan because he is $3 billion and he gets a royalty on the sales and he's making you know well over $100 million a year just, just from the shoe deal. So when people Absolutely. ask what's the biggest deal, it's sort of like when you're negotiating a deal in corporate America, you can get a salary, you, know, you can get a guaranteed amount, or you can get uh, stock. And to give you a great example, There's a player, a very old player named Spencer Haywood. And Spencer Haywood was the first high school player in history to go straight to the pros. And 
he had to take his case to the Supreme Court to get approved to go pro, and he changed the rules. When okay. he he started out, there were two leagues back then that merged, and he was in the other league at first called the ABA with Dr. J and George Gerben and some of the great old players. When he came to the NBA, he played in Seattle, and Nike is based in Portland, which is about you know a few hours away. They wanted a sauce Spencer Haywood. And they were a, a baby company, even more baby than when Michael came out. And so they offered him two deals. They offered him $100,000 a year, which was enormous money back then. This is before Jabbar, or 10% of the entire company. And his agent, who was a sort of a renegade kind of a guy named Al Ross, said, look, I don't know if these guys are gonna stay in business. Forget the stock, just take the cash. And he had taken the stock, that deal would have been worth um, $9 billion. Not $9 million, $9 billion. And so when you ask what's the highest deal, the best deals are ones where you have equity in, the, in, a, in a great company, whether it's Apple. Michael got stock in Nike when he was a rookie as part yeah. of his deal. The stock is probably worth $50 million, just yeah. the stock. Yeah. It's split nine or 10 times. So, you know, I think Nike is, is is the best deal we ever made. It was groundbreaking. Uh, it stood the test of time. It's become an iconic brand. Um, Absolutely. Something I'm very proud of. Yeah, and you should be. You should be, sir. Um, let me, I would love to move it a bit into your, into your own business, fame. Um, sure. You know, which I, I think you, uh, you mentioned earlier in your late 40s or 50s, you, you, became, you became an entrepreneur, um, you know, after many years, of course, uh, working with others. Uh, how was that transition? You know, how did you know? And then, how did you build it up? Um, and what what was the big difference for you? You know, now being on your own. Well, what happened was I, I worked for Donald, and unlike a lot of people, always want to be on their own. I really never wanted to be on my own. I was living my dream. I was representing Michael Jordan, James Worthy, Patrick Ewing, Coach K, John Thompson, uh, all these amazing clients, and. Um, Donald wasn't very good at compensating his his people. And so over time, literally every single major executive at ProServe left and went on their own. Uh, one group left to form a, a big company called Octagon, mm -hmm. uh, had a marketing left, different, everyone left. And I didn't really want to leave. I, I would tell Donald, I got a million offers to run teams and to do many different things for way more money than I was making. But the idea of leaving my clients behind, you know, was something I never even entered my mind. So I would tell them, I'll stay forever, but I have two conditions. One, I never want to have to put a gun to your head and threaten you to leave in order for you to pay me what I'm worth. And two, if I ever find out that there's anyone in the company making more money than me, I'm gone. Just don't apologize. Don't say you didn't know. This is your company. You're the head guy. And... One day I woke up and realized he had failed both tests. And so I just resigned uh, on the spot. I resigned. Uh, I actually had a, a what they call a covenant not to compete that I couldn't stay in the business for three years. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't think I'd be able to keep my clients, but I just couldn't stay. He, he really had let me down. And he knew that if I if he didn't make a deal with me, that the clients would all fire pro-serve because I was managing them all right. in basketball. So we made a deal for me to buy, basically buy the company uh, in what they call an LBO, leverage buyout. Okay. And 
Um, so I took the everything with me. I took all my staff. I took all the clients, and I formed, I formed Fame. Mm. And there were certain, there were certain things we shared for a short period of time. And Donald, Donald promised me that he would not try to compete in basketball. I really didn't care, but he, there were things he wanted me to do. And in return, he promised me he wouldn't compete. But he broke that as well. A year later, he tried to he tried to sign Sean Bradley. Uh, unsuccessfully, we signed him, and that terminated everything. I didn't have to pay anymore at that point. It released me from all my commitments to pay him. It probably saved me about $30 million uh, for him to try unsuccessfully to sign Sean. But I said, one of my own, and I try to do things differently. All the things that I didn't like about ProServe, um, you know, particularly micromanaging. Donald was a compulsive micromanager he wanted to make every decision from you know how big your office was to what call the paper clips were and it's not a very productive exercise for a chief executive officer so i i empowered the president of our company to be the chief coo and i said look this is your show i will never interfere with you make the decisions i'll support them and it took the people about a year and a half to learn that it's a very important lesson for your listeners you know um, there's a famous movie called Dirty Harry with Clint Eastwood. Yes. And at the end of the movie, uh, Clint Eastwood says to his boss, a man's got to know his limitations. And I, I believe in that line. I think you have to, you can't be an expert in everything. You can't make every decision. You can't play every position in a sport. You have to figure out what you're good at and stick, stay in your lane. And uh, as the CEO of the company, I allowed the COO of a company to have very broad authority to, to, to manage the company. So, so we did fame. It was a boutique. It was way small, the ProServe. Uh, we did everything almost the opposite the way they did it at ProServe. Hmm. Um, we allowed the, the, the executives to share in the success of the company. Um, and the company became incredibly profitable. I literally... I literally earned as much money my first two years at Fame as I earned in 17 years combined at ProServe. Wow. Um, and the company did very, very well. And after six years of being on my own, we started getting offers to sell the company um, from some very big companies, including American Express. Um, and um, ironically, when I left, ProServe was struggling because I was, I was the only profitable division of the entire company. Um, and so Donald had to sell the company to this, what they call a roll-up, uh, called Marquee, that took a lot of very small agencies, which ProServe became small, and they put them all together to form this company called Marquee. And the, the gentleman who was running Marquee was a friend of mine named Bob Gutkowski. He wanted us to join Marquee, and I didn't want to be in business with Donald again, so I turned him down. But I learned that Marquee was owned by a gentleman named Bob Silliman, who died about three months ago. And Bob had a company called SFX, um, which had rolled up all the small concert promotion companies in America. It's now called Live Nation. It's the largest concert promoter in the U.S. In the world, pretty much. Yeah, so we told Bob Sullivan, if you want to buy our company, Fame, we don't want to be part of Marquee. We want to be part of SFX, part of the parent. Right. Uh, So we talked and talked. I really didn't want to sell a company, Marcus. I love being on my own. I love having my name on the door. I love being in charge. 
Um, and so I made a decision. A complete. This is a really interesting lesson for your for your listeners. You know, you have to have a a walkaway point. And negotiations 101, they mm-hmm. teach you that you know you can't make every deal, and if you if you can't get what you need to make the deal, you have to walk away. So right. I, in my mind, because I didn't want to work for anyone again because of the relationship you know I had with Donald, which was very non-productive. Um, I decided that if I couldn't get a hundred billion dollars to sell the company, that I wouldn't sell. Right. So um, we hired Goldman Sachs to be our investment advisors, and they told us the company was worth seventy-five to eighty million. Right. And so I knew right away that I wasn't going to be able to sell. So one day, after three or four months of Goldman and Silliman's people, Bear Stearns, talking back and forth, Silliman called me up to New York and said, "David." What do your people think fame is worth? I said, they think it's worth 75 to 80 million. They said, well, my people think it's worth 75 to 80 million. Why can't we make a deal? I said, because I'm not going to sell it if I can't get 100. And if you don't think it's worth 100, you wouldn't offend me in the least, but but I don't have to sell. I'm not in a rush to sell. I'm not forced to sell. You know, we're doing very well financially. And, you know, if I can't get 100, I'm not going to sell. And I said, if you wait and come to me next summer, my number might be 200 million. So he, <laughs> so what happened in the middle of all these discussions is I got a call out of left field from the chairman of Goldman Sachs, Hank Paulson, who's mm-hmm. the gentleman that literally rescued America from the financial crisis in 2000. Mm-hmm. And I met Hank twice. He was from Chicago. He was a huge basketball fan. And for some reason that I've never understood to this day, he, he really liked me and he wanted to help me. And so he called me literally every week on a Sunday. And I was nervous that I was doing something really dumb to turn down the 80 million for an extra 20. Uh, and he said, look, relax, things are under control. And finally, at the end of the time, he closed the deal and he got us 100 million. He got us um, $83 million in cash and a million shares of stock that were valued at $17 a share and went up to about 95. Um, wow. Between the stock and the earnouts, the deal ended up being worth 200 million. So this is another great story for your listeners. So Awesome I, deal. And uh, yeah, that's some, that's some great money for an agency. Uh, absolutely. ProServe sold for 11, Octagon sold for 35, and we were a small division of this company and we sold for, so I took Hank Paulson to lunch in Chicago to thank him for his help. And he brought his son Merritt, who owns a, uh, a soccer team in Portland, and I took my brother. And I wanted to ask him, how did a gentleman who's the chairman of the most prestigious investment bank in America yeah. have the time to help a small company like Fame? And I asked him, what were you working on at the time that the sale was going through, and he wouldn't tell me. I asked him like four or five times, and he, he just, he's a very humble man. He didn't want to make me feel like that I was a, like a little small fisher. He didn't want to tell me. And finally, you know, if you know, after 40 minutes of talking, I don't take no for an answer very well. So I kept pushing, come on, Hank, what were you working on? Finally, he said, if you really need to know, he said, I was working on four transactions, Bank of America and Nations Bank, uh, Chrysler and Mercedes, Polygram and Universal, and Ameritech and Southwest Bell. Those four mergers were worth 1.7 to 
trillion dollars. Yeah, they're huge. Made $254 million in fees. And he at the time, in the midst of all these enormous deals, to call me once a week and hold my hand and keep me relaxed as he went through this process. And it was one of the greatest lessons I ever learned. So after that, when players would ask me, you have Michael Jordan, you have Patrick, you have all these guys, are you too big for me? I would tell them the story of Hank Paulson and what it means to have someone who's big take the time. You know, it's not a question of how much time you have, it's a question of how much impact can you make? And in a very brief period of time, Hank Paulson made an enormous impact on our deal and on my life, and I will always be grateful to him for that. Yeah, that's a that's a great story. I, I love it. Um, and now, obviously, when you then became part of SF, SFX, I believe you were a chairman for a few years, and then uh, SFX, as you mentioned, you know, went on a buying spree, bought a bunch of other companies as well. Um, how was that? Uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you're part of a much larger group um, and doing things maybe on a on a different level. You know, what was the transition there for you? Well, the interesting part of that is that most most of the companies we bought were relatively small companies. We were trying to integrate them together to form this sort of super agency. Mm. And what I learned is that you know every business has a culture, and most of these agencies were very entrepreneurial, and they didn't want to change the way they operated to try to become part of the fabric of something bigger and more powerful. Yeah, I mean, I know the feeling. <laughs> the small markers as titles, like, you know, these people came, some of these businesses we bought for like a million dollars, you know, right. and so let's say the head of the agency was the president of his small company. I had to give them all new titles. Now, you can only have one president of a company, and the president of SFX was the president of Fame. He was my trusted lieutenant, and I, you know, I, I worked well with him, and, and so I wanted, to, I wanted to keep him as the president. And all these people said, well, I want to be the president. And I said, I'll tell you what, if you really want to be the president, give me the million dollars back, you can have your piddly company back, and you can be the the premier, it could be the whatever you want to be, mm. but if you work in a group. And I learned that it's simply buying a company doesn't automatically mean that the cultures will fit. And when you're trying to grow a business, whether you're hiring one person or you're buying a company, you know, it's really important to understand the culture. I was trying to create a culture and most of these people didn't want to adapt their behavior to fit the culture. And so I got very, very frustrated. And the second thing that happened is that SFX sold the entire business to an extremely large radio station company called Clear Channel, which is the yes, largest right. company in the country, for $4.5 billion. And um, this is another amazing story. So I was, I was on the board of directors of SFX. Mm -hmm. Bob Sullivan called us to New York to tell us about this merger with um, clear channel and we approved the merger which meant that I was done my contract was over I was a, a free agent I could do whatever I wanted now right. and the minute the meeting ended I got a call from the chairman of clear channel whose name was Larry Mays who's a legend in the broadcast business and he said David I don't know if you've heard but um, uh, we just bought your company I said Mr. Mays I just heard 10 minutes ago, my head's spinning. 
He said, I want to know, are you going to stay with the company, with Clear Channel? I said, sir, I really don't know. I, I have to sort of digest what this all means for me. You know, I'll let you know in like six months. And he said, no, you don't understand. Like, I need to know right now. And I said, why? It can't matter to you whether I stay or not. Sports represent 8% of SFX's business hmm. and represent less than 1% of Clear Channel's business. It can't possibly matter to you whether one person stays or goes. He goes, you don't understand. I really don't want to buy the company. I think this is a boondoggle. My sons got hypnotized by Bob Silliman to buy this company, and they're my sons, so I'm going to support them. But the only thing I like in the entire company is sports. I'm a big sports fan. I'm a fan of yours. And if you don't stay, I'm not going to buy the company. Now, you talk about pressure. You have a $4.5 billion transaction that's riding on whether one person, you know, who represents a fraction of the business is going to stay. So I was very flattered. So I said, okay, if it's that important, I'm flattered. I'll give it a year. And his son, Mark, who was the COO of Clear Channel, mm-hmm. came to me after about a month and said, David, Clear Channel is a, on the New York Stock Exchange. And in order to maintain our standing on the stock exchange, we just paid a lot of money for SFX. We need you to produce 15% year-over-year growth for your business, um, for SFX Sports. And I said, Mark, I'm sorry, that's just simply not possible. I can't do that. And he said, why not? I said, because the collective bargaining agreement in basketball that governs all the terms of the contracts mm-hmm. only allows the player salaries to go up 10.5%. So I can't give you 15% year-over-year growth. And he said, come on, David, you're a smart guy. It's easy, just sign more clients. And I said, Mark, you don't understand. Our business is like Ferrari. We're at the very high end of the market. We don't discount. We don't sell a lot of Ferraris, but we maintain our price structure. Right. You, know, you want us to become Walmart. You know, you want us to become, you know, a mass retailer. That's not who we are. And mm. after that conversation, I knew that I really had no future there, and I resigned as the chairman because I didn't think that the culture that they were creating. Was a was a positive environment for me to grow the business, so I stepped down as the chairman, and I resigned. Interesting. And again, it's a lesson to the listeners that you know you can't be all things to all people. You know, there's a great expression, you know, famous expression to thy own self be true. You have to know what you are and what you're good at. And if someone, you can't take a job. John Thompson taught me when I was very young. You know, the last thing you should ask in a job interview is how much someone's going to pay you. Because if you don't have in place the structure to be successful, then it doesn't matter how much they pay you. And if you do, then you'll do such a good job that you'll force them to pay you a lot of money in time. Um, And so I didn't feel that the structure uh, at Clear Channel was going to allow me to maintain a business that we had created over a long period of time that was literally the Rolls Royce of the agent business. It wasn't the biggest, it was it was a boutique, but it was very, very efficient, it was very, very high-end, and it was very prestigious, which is why they paid $200 million to buy us. Um, and the idea of turning, turning, if I could use an expression, of turning Neiman Marcus into Walmart was never gonna work. Mm. Was Michael still part of the group at that time, or, or he had already moved on? He was part of he was part of fame when we sold it to SFX, and right after that he retired. Okay, 
Gotcha. Uh, now, I, I have two last ones on the business front, and then we'll move on a little bit to, to some other parts here. Uh, one is, if I recall correctly, Mark, as you mentioned earlier, Marquis bought uh, ProSurf, and then later on Marquis as well as uh, SFX also became sort of one, which means, if I understood this correctly, one way or the other, Donald, uh, your former boss, um, he ended up working then for you there in some sense. I'm sure that must have been a bit awkward. Uh, just just quick one on that. Yeah, it was it was very awkward. Like a lot of people say, wow, this is like your chance to get even with Donald. And I really never want to get even with Donald. I think that, you know, what I wanted was to get away from Donald because it was an abusive, <laughs> it was an abusive relationship. And so what happened was Donald's a very political person. And he realized that he's now, you know, he didn't know whether I was going to get even or not. So he took me to breakfast like four times and it was like the movie Groundhog Day. The script of every breakfast was the same. We sat down and you start asking, how's your wife? How's your kids? How's Michael? How's Patrick? How's Coach K? How's John? He went through all these people. And finally, like, I looked at my watch and said, Donald, I don't be rude. I got a lot of work to do today. I got to go. And he would ask me, let me ask you a question. Are you bitter about your experience of pro-serve? And he wanted, which is his way of asking me, like, you know, are you going to try to get even for how I treated you? Mm. And I, every first three meetings, I said no. And finally, the fourth breakfast came, got to the point. I said, Donald, I've got to go. Looked at my watch. And he said, David, are you bitter about your experience of pro serve? I said, Donald, let's agree on two things, okay? You screwed me, okay? You broke your word. You had secret deals with people in the company. You know, you never paid me what you thought I was worth. When I resigned from Donald, I was making $230,000. And his opening offer to keep me was eight hundred. And I said to him, if I'm worth eight hundred, why are you paying me $230,000? Why do I have to threaten to resign to have you? So I said to him, you screwed me. You broke your word on both conditions. But I would have signed my life away for a million dollars a year. It would have cost me $200 million. So let's agree, you screwed me and I'm not bitter. Now, can we please stop having these ridiculous breakfasts? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and, that's a good so story. I, did, I, did, I felt that you know, Donald paid the price for not being fair. You know, His company, he lost hundreds of millions. If he'd kept ProServe together, I think it would have been worth three quarters of a, bill, of a billion dollars. And he sold for $11 million. So his ways caught up with him. And for me, it gave me a chance to be on my own, make a lot of money, and be in charge of my, you know, of, of my company and my people, take care of my people. Um, I'll tell you an interesting sideline. So there was one man I had hired named Michael Higgins. And when ProServe was doing really poorly, I went to Donald and said, Donald, the overhead is choking the company. You've got to cut people. We have just, mm. companies going to go under. And so I, gave, I spent six months studying the numbers. I gave him a whole analysis. And he said to me, okay, who do you want to cut? I said, I don't want to cut anyone. Basketball is the only business in the entire company that's making money. I want to hire more people. He said, no, no, you can't ask people to cut if you're not willing to cut, I said, no, Donald, it doesn't work that way. You know, it's like feed a fever, starve a cold. You know, you get rid of the, of the fat in places where you're losing money and you mm -hmm. invest where you're making money. So he said, I want you to fire Mike Higgins, who's making $38,000 a year as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I said, I will not fire Mike Higgins. I'll quit before him. And so we sold the business 
Mike Higgins made more money when we sold Fame than Dahl made selling ProServe, which gave me, you know, from a guy making $38,000, gave me a tremendous feeling of satisfaction that we're able to reward the people that helped grow Fame into a successful company, uh, you know, reward them as best we could. Yeah, that's, that's a great story. And I have a follow-up a bit on, and I want to use, uh, talk about others here at the moment. So, you know, WME, IMG, UFC, you know, Endeavor now, um, obviously are sort of uh, this big conglomerate along the lines of what SFX was trying to do at that time. Where do you see them going? Um, I mean, they tried an IPO, which didn't work or was stopped in a sense. Um Where do you see the big exit for, for someone like them? Um, you know, is it pu going public or you think, uh, what, what's, their, what's their end goal, end route here? Well, first of all, I'm a big fan of, of WME. Ari Emanuel I met when he was a very young agent before he even founded Endeavor. Uh, he and Pat Whitesell, who run the company, you know, I consider you know, good friends. I have a tremendous respect. They bought IMG for $2.4 billion. They bought UFC, UFC for, for a bill I think, $4 billion, I think, or something. I think the environment for going public last year, excuse me, was, was poor. I think eventually they would either go public or sell. CAA, which is owned about 70% by, uh, by TPC, by Ponderman, yes. uh, you, know, uh, you know, I think he'll, he'll turn around and sell out as well. But, but before they sell, you know, what's happening is the competition among these mega agencies becomes so intense that they they're lowering their fees the competition is forcing them to lower their fees um, the cost of doing business is going up um, and I think the profitability is going down um, mm. you know, I think I think in theory they're all going to put each other out of business in the sports side um, you know I talked for years with Richard Lovett who's the head of CAA about merging after I went on my own um, and I was at SFX and he was saying like, gosh, you guys are only charging 4% for your clients. We're charging 10. How can you run a business of 4%? Well, I'd be surprised if the average fee in basketball today is 2%, you know, mm. CA signed a lot of their football clients for 1%. And wow. so, um, and so the margins have come down enormously. Um, and I think that I think that all these companies that are in both sports and Hollywood, um, you know, they're competing on all cylinders, if you will. And I think that the competition is driving down the margins to a precipitous level where almost not worth it. It's almost not worth it to be in the business. The other and, thing, and these, these, sorry, just to jump in for that, these percentages, these drops, is that driven by the leaks, or that is just the competition is so high now that people have to lower their their prices or, or their their fees? Yeah, just by. I think it's being driven by the competition. But the other thing that's happening, which is has nothing to do with the, the opposite trend, is happening is that because the business in basketball, NBA basketball, is so regulated by the collective bargaining agreement, and a player like LeBron who's making about $40 million. He should be making $100 million, like Messi or Ronaldo, you know, or, or the great soccer players. And and so, but it's artificially being kept down. And so it takes zero skill to walk in the door and say, I want the maximum allowable for LeBron. It should take like one minute to make that deal or for, you know, any of the stars, Steph Curry or, you know, um, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Um, and because of that, they're, they're reducing the value of the agents. 
And so a lot of these star players, like Kevin Durant, for example, they're forming what I call family offices. They're going with basically one person and having that one person be more like their business manager and their agent, getting involved in venture capital and trying to set up, you know, good financial management. And I think down the road, the, the soup that these large integrated agencies in, in basketball, I'm not talking about football or, or tennis or golf, but in basketball, because of the amount of regulations that the players face, I think that the star players are going to gravitate away from the large agencies and, and basically have their own. Go on their own. Uh, Kobe did that. You know, um, a lot of the star players are beginning to do that. I see that's a trend down the road. And it's, it's pounded by the fact that the big agencies are, as I said, they're, they're, they're driving each other out of business slowly. They're like, um, it's, it's so the, the industry clearly over your time has dramatically changed. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's obvious from what you're sharing here. Oh, sure. I mean, if you think about this, my very first client that, that I worked with, John Lucas, in 1976, so a long time ago, almost yes. Ago, he was the number one pick in the draft. He made three hundred thousand dollars a year. That's less than the minimum that the last pick in the draft will make in two thousand twenty. Uh, so salaries have exploded. You know, the cap came into the NBA in nineteen eighty two at three point two million, and now it's one hundred and ten million. So, just the scale has changed. For me, I've been. I started out at Dell Craigle Federation Benton, which is a six-person law firm which grew into ProServe, which had a couple of hundred employees. So the second biggest agency in the world. I went on my own with fame and had 24 employees and 40 clients. We were very small. We sold to SFX and became the largest agency in the world. I stepped down and relaunched fame in 2007. It's now just me and my partner, Danielle Cantor, who's the only woman in the world that represents NBA players, that has clients. She's got right. three clients. She's a rock star. She's going to be the next star uh, in the basketball agent business. Awesome. Uh, she's been with me for 20 years. She's very, very smart, extremely competitive. She's a soccer player and she's a woman. And I love empowering women. So um, That's awesome. And, and, and that's actually, I had a question a couple of times on my tongue here. Um, you've never uh, moved outside of uh, or ventured outside of basketball from what I can tell, right? Or do you ever represent other sports? No, I have. I did. I did NFL football for a long time. All right. Uh, okay. Had some great football clients. The very the second player I ever represented was a, a wide receiver named James Lofton. We got him the highest contract in NFL history by thirty percent. Uh, the right. second we ever made. So after that, we got a we had a great uh, quarterback named Boomer Sison, who's a broadcaster now. He's the godfather of my daughter. We had a very famous Hall of Fame football player, Chris Dolman, who's the fifth all-time sacker in NFL history, who tragically died of brain cancer about a month ago. He's a very dear friend of mine. Uh, we had some great football clients. Obviously, I did tennis. So I wanted to come back. You asked about other sports. A very interesting thing uh, happened to me a few months ago. An old friend of mine who was not a client named M.L. Carr, who was a basketball player for the Boston Celtics, called me and told me that uh, he wanted to come to Washington have dinner with me and introduced me to a 15-year-old tennis prodigy in Washington, D.C. named Robin Montgomery. Mm -hmm. So ML came with his wife and, and the woman who was friends with the family and 
and the girl and her mother, Gabby. So we all had dinner, and this girl's 15 years old, very attractive, very, very smart, very poised for someone her age, and she's being pressured by a lot of the agencies to turn pro. Right. Uh, and so she's I She's American, or which, which part of the world do you think? Yeah, she's American, right. African-American, actually. And, um, and so I haven't done tennis. I did tennis from 80, 74 to 85, and I vowed I'd never get back into it. So I told her, I don't want to represent you, but I would love to help you pick an agent. So I screened the agents for Rob. Mm. And we had four or five companies come in and make presentations. We asked questions. And while this process was going on, we started this in like October, she won the national championship for juniors in America, which is called the Orange Bowl. Right. Uh, and then the pressure increased. And then she won her first pro tournament. She hasn't even turned pro. She won a pro tournament about three weeks ago in Las Vegas. And because of the coronavirus pandemic, they obviously closed down tennis, so she won the last tournament on the circuit. And I had a great experience sort of being a teacher, a screener, an advisor, not to be her agent, but to listen to the other agent's pitcher. Uh, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was really interesting. So she's on the verge of making a decision, and I think the girls could potentially could be the next Serena Williams. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. A bit of deja vu there, I guess, for you, uh, having all these guys pitching to you now. Huh? <laughs> One of the things I wanted to talk about we haven't touched on is like, you know, we talked about a lot of, you know, positive things and, you know, everyone makes mistakes in their career and I think you learn from your mistakes. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I tell player players I meet, you should pick because I've made more mistakes than anyone. I've learned from my mistakes. And we talked about culture and we talked about fit. You know, I signed a player in 1998 named Stefan Marbury, who's become a star in China. Mm -hmm. And he asked me to, to work for him. Um, I agreed to do it. And most people told me, David, you know, it's impossible to manage this guy. He comes from a very difficult family. He's very stubborn, headstrong. You may be the only human being on earth to do it, but stay away from his family. His family is toxic. Mm. And um, so I agreed to do it. And John Thompson called me in right away. And he says, son, can I ask you a question? Have you become a social, uh, social worker? <laughs> Have you become a spiritual advisor? I said, no. He said, do you think that because of your success and your personality that you're going to change this young player? I said, of course. That's why I signed him. He said, get over yourself. You're not a spiritual advice, you're not going to change someone who's 22 years old. They yeah. are what they are. Then I, yeah. I had two clients on his team, that were my, my clients, they came up to me and they didn't like them. And they said, David, can I ask you a question? Are you having financial problems? I said, no, financial problems. I'm doing really well for this. They said, well, why would you sign Stefan? I said, oh, come on, guys. Stefan's not a bad guy. And I said, David, Stefan's a bad guy. And it, it made me realize that the players look at you, at your clients, and they look at the decisions that you make as a reflection of your values. And they mm -hmm. were very disappointed in my judgment that I would sign a player like Marbury, even right. though he's a very, very talented guy. And it became impossible to work for him. I, I story's too long to tell, but you know, I, I resigned. I got to a point, I wrote him a letter, and I said, 
I think that I'm wasting my time trying to manage your career, and I think you're wasting your money paying me to manage your career because you don't listen to my advice. So I think we should we should part company. Mm. And you know, we all make mistakes. And the mistake that I made, which is a classic mistake, is I let my ego interfere with my judgment. My judgment right. told me, I don't think this is a good fit. But my ego made me feel I could somehow hypnotize Stefan into changing the way he operated. And, uh, you know, it was a rude awakening when I realized that I made that kind of mistake. And when you make a mistake, you've got to be smart enough and confident enough to admit you made a mistake and rectify the mistake. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you need to do a Tony Robbins on him, I guess, but uh, that's a different story. Uh, that's very interesting, and, and I appreciate it. And I always like uh, when, when uh, my guests talk a bit about, I mean, you have so many success stories from, you know, uh, in your career, we've already heard. Uh, but I do think we all have to realize we, we, we all make mistakes. Uh, and I think we, as long as you learn from them, um, and at, at one point in time, figure out uh, that, uh, that you are making the mistake, a lot of people don't. I think that's the, the key to the puzzle here. I'd like to go further. I think, I think that in business, you know, there's a great, there was a famous book many, many years ago written called Dare to be Great. And I think in business, you have to be willing to make mistakes. You have to be willing to take risks knowing that not, not every decision is going to work out. You have to take calculated risks where you think yes. that the reward is worth the risk. Absolutely. And a, a lot of people are afraid to take to take risks. They're afraid to pull the trigger. And I think what, what makes you successful is a willingness to sort of step out and take risks, to, to see things before they happen and be willing to, to make a mistake or be willing to fail. Um, and you don't want to do that. You don't want to be reckless in the way you do that. You don't want to put people's lives in danger or their careers in danger, but you have to be willing to take risks or, or you're never going to be successful. I would totally agree with that. Yeah, and I think that is the the sort of the general consensus, I guess, of an entrepreneur. Right, you take these calculated risks, and um, you know, and and some work and some won't. That's just how it works. Uh, um, now, I'd love to have a quick chat about some of the new things you're doing. Uh, and I, I know uh, the the gentleman you're working with, Dr. Near, uh, as well. Um, and it's you know Factory X, and you have the Pangea Cup. So you're moving in the world of of esports, uh, you know, and, and and even the the gaming side of it, betting side. Um, some really interesting, unique things, which are I would say very different than what you used to do. Um, how did you get involved in that, and, and and what's your view on all this? Well, what happened was from time to time, people would come to me and say, "Hey, I just have this great invention that I think would be great for." shoes you know can you introduce me to nike or I have a new drink can you introduce me to gatorade and um you know i i had like dozens and dozens of these and so mm. a few really interested me uh and i got i got involved as both an investor uh at the beginning i put money into these things and then i got smart <laughs> you know i, I had no experience <laughs> this and i said look if you want me to help you my time and my contacts, in my opinion, are worth more than my money. You can get money from lots of different people, but right. the most valuable money, in my opinion, uh, you know, when you get involved in these kinds of businesses, is strategic money. It's people that can make an important introduction to you uh, and accelerate accelerate your growth. And so, Absolutely. after investing 
you know, probably a few million dollars and seven or eight of these things. I started saying with companies, look, if you want me to help, give me some shares in the company mm -hmm. and I'll help you grow it. And so I have it literally over a dozen of these things. Uh, okay. You mentioned X Factory, which is the most recent one, uh, and Nir has become a very dear friend. I met Nir in Israel. He was introduced to I introduced him through my son-in-law, and they are a sports tech accelerator. Right. They take existing companies that are in the sports space. You mentioned a lot of the areas: esports, gambling, uh, analytics. There's a, a lot of different areas, mm -hmm. and they they're going to pick these companies and pick a handful of these companies and invest in them and try to help them grow um, and, and take and take equity in them as, as they grow. And if you could find the next Facebook or the next Uber, you, know, you can make a lot of money. But Nier's an extremely bright guy with an amazing work of people, um, as you know. Uh, I have another company uh, that I'm involved in called Ostendo, which is sort of an under-the-radar company that uh, is involved in making computer chips that utilize photonics, which, are light, which is light, which is the next um, frontier uh, you know, to make supercomputers uh, and to do a lot of the things that are necessary, you know, in the next 20 years of our development, it's going to take these light chips. Um, you might have read recently that um, Facebook just bought a big company uh, uh, that's involved in this. Um, and so I've been involved with Ostendo for about four or five years. Incredibly bright people. The technology is, is amazing. And I've been able to introduce them to my network of people that I've met through sports and through you know, 45 years of being in business. Another business right here in Washington called Consumable, which is sort of a um, combination of a digital advertising company with a, uh, uh, a content platform. Uh, uh, we've done really, really well um, uh, in, a, in a few years. The, the gentleman who founded it, Mark Levin, has become a very dear friend. He's a serial entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And and at a time in my business life when the rules in the NBA are so restrictive that it's taken much of the creativity out of uh, the ability of an agent to make a difference, right. these venture capital projects that I'm involved in, these entrepreneurial companies, have given me a chance to be creative, which I think is my greatest strength. Um, right. I think I'm a creative person, uh, and and I'm willing to take risks, and it's given me tremendous satisfaction of trying to connect people that I've known as long as 45 or 50 years with each other to try to make these companies function, you know, more efficiently. Yeah, and and I definitely, and I think it, I can tell from a the conversation and b uh, earlier. Uh, having each, seeing each other there, it keeps you young, uh, and I think it keeps uh, keeps you going, and and that's most that's very important too, I believe. Absolutely, I mean, I think there's enough. You know, I, I love to challenge myself. I love to try to learn new things. You're never too old to learn, and when you deal with smart people, all these companies, people like near extremely intelligent people, um, you know, you're constantly learning new things and keeping in the flow of what. You know what's happening. I'm not particularly uh, adept in technology, but when you surround yourself with these people, you learn so many interesting things um, that it it uh, it definitely keeps you active. And you know we're living in a very unique period of time right now with the with the coronavirus pandemic. Where I've been sitting in my house now for 
you know, over two weeks. And, you know, I'm not here, you know, playing solitaire. I'm on the phones and making calls and trying to make things happen. Absolutely. Self active and try to keep, you know, keep my, you know, my psyche uh, healthy because these are very, very difficult times. And, and I think, I think your, your listeners out there who, you know, uh, I know that Asia is a little bit ahead of us and getting over the curve, but we have a window in time. We often don't have the luxury of time to do certain things that we like to do or to do certain, just sit and think about things or analyze things or step away from the action. And this pandemic has forced us to a certain extent to step away and it's given me time to brainstorm a lot of ideas uh, for these companies I'm involved in and for my clients. And so while I'm don't, not happy that we're involved in this situation, I think you have to pivot as an entrepreneur and use the opportunities presented to you in a productive fashion. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and uh, similar here. Um, I, and I am involved in uh, in Factory Act as well. I'm, I'm an advisor here for Asia, so uh, I look forward to working with you and near some more on this. Um, and I do hope you stay safe uh, with the virus there. Please stay away from it, uh, and of course the family. Uh, thank you so much for your time here. This was an unbelievable interview. I could go on forever, uh, and I know you have lots more stories to share. But uh, I think also. For your own, uh, for your time, and, and our listeners here, we stop right here. And uh, again, thank you so much, David, for the uh, incredible hour here, hour and a half I had with you. I, first of all, I really enjoyed it. Great questions. You know, John Thompson taught me that if you want to get great answers, you have to ask great questions. So you're you're a great interviewer. I really really enjoyed the chat. I hope uh, the audience uh, enjoyed it. Maybe learned a few things, and you know, maybe we'll do it again. Absolutely. Looking forward to it and, and catching up soon. Thank you and have a good day there in Washington. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.